0: Hello folks, Dominic here. Just a quick note before we begin, there is an extended version of this episode available to my Patreon subscribers. In a special epilogue, I explore the discovery and excavation of Ramesses I's tomb. This happened in the early 1800s and is part of an interesting story. I will release this material to the public one day, but since it deals with modern archaeology and Egyptology, I'm probably not going to reach that chapter for quite a long time. If you want to hear it now, in its proper context, you can find it on patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Eri, Nini and Chen, greetings to you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 178, From Nile to Niagara. Today, we continue the tale of Ramesses I, Egypt's new ruler, and his novel family. It is a tale with several moving parts, including Ramesses' government and his heir, the Crown Prince Seti, as well as a curious tale of international travel. It's a fun ride. This episode comes to you on behalf of Brian, Joel and Muhammad, who joined the Patreon as hereditary nobles. Folks, you are too kind. May the great sun god Ra shine upon your lands. Bring prosperity to your house and ensure your bloodline endures for three thousand years. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let's continue the tale of Ramesses the First. The year was 1304 BCE, give or take. It was regnal year two, in the reign of King Ramesses I. Ramesses, or Menpehti Ra, had taken power after the death of his predecessor, Horemheb. Now, the king was establishing his authority throughout the two lands, and into some foreign neighbouring territories. When he came to power, Ramesses was probably in his mid to late forties, or his early fifties. For the ancient world, that was a healthy, elderly age. On average, people tended to die early in childhood, or sometime in their late 30s to 40s. So Ramesses had already had a good run by the standards of his society. And yet, he now took up the mantle of royal power. What would he do with it, and how long would he rule? We don't have a huge number of monuments for Ramesses I. His later successors, Seti I and Ramesses II, would build so much that they really overshadowed their predecessor. Surprisingly, a lot of what we know about Ramesses' reign actually comes from his family. Before he came to the throne, Ramesses had a family. He had a wife named Tia, whom we'll meet in a moment. He also had a son. Paramesu, Ramesses in his pre-royal guise, fathered at least one child. The boy's name was Suti, although we know him better as Seti. Seti was probably born sometime in the reign of I, or maybe Tutankhamun. We don't have an exact date, but working backwards from his mummy, we can estimate a birth somewhere in that period. So by the time Horemheb became the king, Ramesses already had a son, a healthy boy who had survived the dangerous years of early childhood. By the end of Horemheb's reign, young Seti was probably in his late 20s or early 30s. And it's not hard to imagine him and his father Rameses making a formidable duo in Horemheb's court. In fact, we might easily speculate that one of the reasons Horemheb chose Rameses to be his heir was that he already had a mature and healthy son. The kingship would be guaranteed for at least a couple of generations. So the mere existence of Seti, or Suti, might have been a strong recommendation for Horemheb to appoint his colleague Pa to be the next king. Once he did become the pharaoh, Ramesses used his son as a core part of his government and administration. Most of what I'm about to tell you comes from Seti's own mouth, monuments that he erected once he was the king. As a result, he may be editing his own past, making himself look better and more important in the government, but at the very least, these texts will give us an idea of the role Seti might have played as the heir and prince of his father. Seti describes this period in surprising detail. In a ceremonial text recorded at Abydos, Seti wrote the following, So the lord of all, Ra, appointed my father as ruler to restore their temples. Then my father began to exercise the kingship of Ra, being seated upon the throne like him. His, the king's, purification was performed in the upper Egyptian shrine, the Perwer. He assumed the crowns, and he ruled Egypt with the strength of a falcon. Indeed, it was he, Ramesses, who created my beauty, He made my family great in the minds of the people. He gave me his advice as my protection, and his teaching was like a fortress in my heart. Behold, I am a son who is useful to the one that fashioned me. I was keeping alive the name of my progenitor, or father. I was effective and adept at doing whatever he said. While the king was shining like Ra, I was with him like a star at his side. End quote. Seti commissioned these texts after he became the pharaoh, the ruler of the two riverbanks. Naturally, we have to take everything he says with a grain of natron. But even with that in mind, his descriptions are useful. Seti gives us a few details about the reign of Ramesses I, and his own part within those events. The young man, later pharaoh, describes his work in Ramesses' government, and even his military affairs. Seti says the following, For the king I subdued the lands of the Fenchu, and I repulsed dissidents or rebels from the desert hill countries, so that I might protect Egypt for the king as his wish. And I organised his kingship for him there, like Horus did on the throne of Wen-Nefer, Osiris. I mustered the king's army, and gave it unity of purpose. For him, I sought out the condition of the two lands, and I wielded my strong arm as his bodily protection in the foreign lands whose names were previously unknown. I was a valiant hero before him, so that he opened his eyes to my excellence." Again, we treat these texts cautiously, but there is some valuable information here. Apparently, Prince Seti acted as one of the high administrators for his father, organising the two lands, and the administration. This might be genuine. From a later era, we have a record in which somebody calls Seti the vizier of his father. In other words, we get an idea that, having taken the throne, Ramesses I appointed his eldest son as the highest ranking minister, the chati, or vizier. So when Seti says that he organised and surveyed the two lands for his father, there's a decent chance that is legitimate. Seti also claims to have led a campaign, a military expedition to the east and north on the behalf of Ramesses. Seti marched against a people called the Fenchu. This is most likely the region of Lebanon, but you might know it by another name, Phoenicia. The Phoenicians are a famous people in ancient history. They are most famous as merchants and seafarers plying the waters of the Mediterranean in great ships. Archaeologically, we do know that this region, at this time, was something of a trading hub. Many shipwrecks in the eastern Mediterranean contained artefacts from the Lebanon and this coastal area. And of course the great cities of this region, like Byblos and Tyre, were prominent political centres with major influence and connections across these many lands. So when Seti says that he went forth against the Fenhu, it's entirely possible he is describing the early groups of the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians are going to show up many times in our story to come, but it's interesting to see them here. Assuming that the Fenhu-Phoenician connection is genuine, then Seti, as crown prince, may be one of the earlier records of these people. We're going to come back to the eastern Mediterranean and its business with Seti in the coming episodes. Once he becomes the king of Egypt, Seti would lead multiple military campaigns into that region, and he would deal directly with the people of Canaan, Syria, and the Lebanon. So keep these Fenchu, Phoenicians in mind, we're going to see them again. According to this text from Abydos, Seti was an active prince on behalf of his father, He went forth on military campaigns, and he organised business within Egypt itself. From this text, we do get a sense that King Ramesses relied heavily on his son as a deputy or administrator for all of his royal business. Again, Seti has every reason to exaggerate his own accomplishments, but it would make sense. If Ramesses was 50, give or take, when he became the king, and Seti was approximately 30, The two were perfectly capable of acting together as rulers. Maybe Ramesses relied upon his son as the young, active representative for the crown. To be clear, I'm not suggesting they were co-regents, or that Ramesses officially appointed Seti as a second king. But if you have a crown prince who is mature and healthy, why not use him as a potential asset? At least from Seti's texts at Abydos we get a sense that he was an active part of the king's government. The point is, Ramesses' kingship also saw the rise of Seti as the crown prince. Together, the father and the son would lead the two lands, administering its business, and dealing harshly with its neighbours. Unfortunately, this is most of the information we get about Seti's time as prince. We will get a few hints later from other monuments. But this is the only text that lays out any proper detail about what he actually did. For those interested, this text is available in hieroglyphs and translation by Kenneth Kitchen. It is from volume 1 in his Ramesside Inscriptions, text number 54. Before we move on, we should probably note that Seti also had a son. By the time Horamheb died, Seti had likely fathered a child, a boy he named Ramesu. We do not know much about Ramesu during his early childhood, but we do know that he would later become the king, Ramesses II. Certainly, by the time Ramesses I was in power, this young boy had already taken his first breaths. So that is Prince Seti. What about Seti's mother? Who was the Queen of Egypt during this time? When Paramesu ascended the throne, he changed his name to Ramesses, and we know him better as Ramesses I. At the time, he seems to have been married, and his wife did the same thing as her husband. During their non-royal career, Paramesu's wife was probably named Tia. But when she took power and became the queen of Egypt, this woman apparently changed her name to Satre, or Sitra, However you pronounce it, the name means daughter of Ra, basically the feminine equivalent of Ra Mesu, born of Ra. Sitra, the new queen of Egypt, has left surprisingly few records. We get a little bit of information about her during the reign of her son, and I'll tell that story at the appropriate moment. But apart from being a king's great wife, we know almost nothing about this woman. Where did she come from? Who was her family? What kind of role did she play in Ramesses' regime? All of this is mysterious, which is kind of similar to the last couple of queens. Queen Nojmet, wife of Horemheb, and Queen Tia, the wife of Ai, are both relatively invisible during their husband's reign. They have some minor records and monuments, but compared to the great figures like Ankhesenamun, Nefret Iti, and Queen Ti, these later queens are far less prominent. That may have been intentional, perhaps following the Amana period, the royal government, or at least the courtiers, wanted to downplay the influence of powerful royal women. We can only speculate on that, and we should always be careful about projecting modern sensibilities back onto the past. But there is a noticeable pattern. After famous figures like T and Nefertiti, We don't know much about the next generation of queens. It's a difficult situation to untangle on the evidence currently available. On the one hand, we can wonder, did certain groups within society try to push the role of the king's great wife into the background? Or is it simply a matter of preservation? Does this period just happen to leave fewer records than what we would expect for these powerful ladies? As always, it is difficult to speculate with such meagre materials. But we are going to explore this question in greater detail in future episodes. Although the 18th dynasty and the days of Nefertiti and T have passed, we are not done with famous, influential queens. There are some truly noteworthy names coming up. So the story is not as simple as we might imagine. For now, all we can say is that Queen Sitra the wife of Ramesses I, is relatively invisible during her husband's time on the throne. That would change following his death and the ascent of their son, but for now, we will leave the queen at the court, in a position of some obscurity. We know far less about Queen Sitra than we do her son, Prince Seti, but this was the family of Ramesses I, the royal lineage that he and his wife were shaping. Anyway, back to Rameses. prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus ramesses was established in power he had completed his coronation and the burial of his predecessor he had issued decrees and commissioned small monuments at places like karnak the king was starting to establish his authority and his regime was probably picking up steam what next the next thing that ramesses did was die King Ramesses I only ruled for 18 months, approximately. We have some records that reference year 2, so he made it at least 12 months on the throne. But beyond that, the evidence for this king suddenly disappears. His royal tomb is tiny and clearly incomplete, and his monuments, beyond Karnak, are practically non existent. In other words, King Ramesses I probably died less than 24 months after he took power. That makes him one of the shortest reigning kings on record. Such a short reign means that Ramesses I is basically a footnote in royal political history. He made a few contributions to places like Karnak and the West Bank, but in total, he simply didn't have time to make a proper impact. The king's heirs notably his son, Seti I, would contribute to his legacy by commissioning monuments in his name. And it's thanks to Seti that we have a few better records of Ramesses I and his time. But overall, the king was a victim of circumstance and bad luck. He came to power, ruled about 18 months, and then passed to the west. Ramesses must have known that his time in power was probably not going to be long. And this is most visible in his tomb. King Ramesses I has a royal tomb in the Valley of the Kings. He commissioned this early in his reign, and it made some progress in the 18 to 24 months of his reign. But the tomb itself is incredibly small, and its dimensions are seriously truncated compared to earlier rulers. The king's tomb consists of a small entry corridor, a staircase, another corridor another staircase, and then a burial chamber. This is much shorter than a royal tomb is supposed to be. The king's burial chamber is really the antechamber for a normal tomb. Clearly, work had only proceeded this far before the king's health started to fail, and the royal artisans and stonemasons hurriedly converted this first chamber into a burial space. Today, the king's tomb consists of one large room, in which his sarcophagus rests, and three small chambers on the western, southern, and northern sides of the hall. The tomb is open to the public today, and if you visit it, you'll get a sense of what I mean. As you descend the staircase and reach the bottom, you are immediately confronted with the enormous granite sarcophagus. The burial chamber itself is not much larger than that of Tutankhamun. In fact, the overall tomb's dimensions are roughly comparable with the boy king. Unfortunately, Ramesses did not enjoy an intact, splendid burial that would be discovered by modern archaeologists. Instead, the hall is empty, except for the sarcophagus, and the beautiful paintings. The walls of this tomb are decorated with images of the king before the gods, and various scenes from the Book of Gates, that elaborate funerary literature that we described in previous episodes. The colours are bright and vibrant, and the overall quality of the art is exceptional. It's almost as good as Horemheb, except for one crucial difference. The decoration of this burial chamber is simply painted on the wall. Horemheb's artists had done something different. They had sketched the scene out, and then chiseled the carvings out of the wall. This gave them a slightly raised quality, similar to the walls of a temple but that style of decoration was incredibly laborious and time-consuming. Apparently, the artists decorating Ramesses' burial chamber knew they did not have time to accomplish that, so they went straight back to paint on top of plaster. It's an interesting blip after Hormeb's innovations. The art is beautiful, and one particularly noteworthy scene is in a small alcove. On the western side of the burial chamber, a low-niche kind of goes inwards, a bit like a corridor. But it's a short corridor, and at the end, on the wall, you can see a beautifully painted image of Osiris. The god stands, mummified, within a shrine, while a serpent and a ram-headed deity accompany him. It seems to be a small niche for the veneration and protection of Osiris. Here the great king of the dead would stand strong and guarded by the powerful deities who accompanied him. These little Osiris niches appear in the tomb of Horomeb, first of all, and they're going to develop over the subsequent generations. It's an interesting little feature that we see beautifully represented in Ramesses' tomb. So, the tomb is small, consisting of one major room, and three small niches or alcoves leading off. The tomb itself is truncated in its dimensions, the staircases and corridors leading to the burial chamber, are shorter than they normally would. So it seems like Ramesses architects kind of knew they didn't have that long to build it, and they designed a tomb with smaller dimensions overall. Of course if the pharaoh reigned longer than expected, they could simply expand and build upon what was there. But in the end, the truncated design was a good choice. When the king died just 18 to 24 months into his reign, the burial chamber was already underway, and the artists could rush to finish it. They did a good job in the circumstances. With Ramesses dead, the kingship would now pass to his son. Suti, or Seti, inherited the thrones and became the next pharaoh. We will tell his story next episode. For now, let us explore the curious tale of Ramesses I's mummy. Following his death, Ramesses would undergo embalming and preservation. This would have occurred in one of the temples at the southern city, Waset, or Thebes. Ramesses I does not have his own memorial temple, the monuments that kings established for their eternal cult. So we're not sure where exactly he was mummified. Possibly the temple of Horemheb at Medinet Habu? But that's speculative. The point is, the priests and physicians would remove the internal organs and preserve his royal body. Then, after a couple of months, the king would undergo his funeral. His son Seti and the high priests would lead Ramesses to his tomb in the Valley of the Kings. There, the mummy would lie amid its gold and treasures, and sleep undisturbed forevermore. Of course, that's not exactly what happened. Rameses did lie within his tomb for many decades, even centuries after his funeral. But eventually, the tomb itself was violated and robbed. And in a later generation, high priests of Waset, or Thebes, organised the reburial of various royal mummies. At some point, the priests entered the tomb of Rameses I. They opened the sarcophagus, and removed the coffin and the mummy within. At first, they took this mummy to a nearby tomb, possibly the tomb of Seti I, Ramesses' son. There, King Ramesses I would lie for at least a few years, but eventually he was moved once again. Around 1150 BCE, priests of the region removed many royal mummies from their tombs and burial chambers. They gathered the bodies, repaired or rewrapped their linen shrouds, and placed them back into coffins. Some rulers went into their original caskets, others had to make do with new coffins, repurposed from other bodies. At some point, Rameses I may have gone into one of these. And subsequently, that coffin was placed in a tomb that we know as TT-320. TT-320 was officially discovered in 1881, and this was one of the famous royal caches the tombs in which many bodies of royal and non-royal figures were prepared and hidden by the priests. During the initial exploration of TT320, one of the excavators noted that there was a coffin labelled for Ramesses I, and yet the body within that was missing. As a result, the next hundred years passed with Ramesses I being officially unidentified. There were some discussions in the early scholarship of various mummies that might have been Ramesses, but subsequent research has proved these to be other individuals. So for a long time, Ramesses was lost. We had the mummies of Seti I, Ramesses II, and many of Ramesses' descendants, and yet the old king himself was gone. Fast forward to the late 20th century, and an interesting story developed. In 1999, a museum in Canada was closing its collection and shutting. This was the Niagara Falls Museum in Ontario. The museum had a vast collection of various knickknacks and oddities, and among its many items was a group of mummies. The mummies came from various periods. But at some point, somebody visiting the Niagara Falls Museum noticed something interesting about a particular body. They observed that the arms of this mummy were crossed over the chest. Generally speaking, that is a feature of royal mummies, not non-royal. It does appear in non-royal bodies in later periods, but these were a thousand years after Ramesses I. And the style of mummification on this particular body suggested that it was older. So with an old mummy with crossed arms, that pointed to a royal individual. At this point, a scholar named Peter Lakovara enters the tale. Dr. Peter Lakovara completed his PhD in the mid-1990s, examining the palaces of ancient Egyptian rulers. Dr. Lakovara was a curator at the Michael Carlos Museum at Emory University. This is in Atlanta, in the United States. When Dr. Lakovara heard that the Niagara Falls Museum was closing their collection, and that they possessed many mummies, He went to inspect the collection, and see if the Michael Carlos Museum might purchase it. Long story short, they did, and following that, the body with the crossed arms underwent examination in the radiology department of Emory University, and several features were noteworthy. For one thing, the mummification style was consistent with a late 18th or early 19th dynasty period, Some of the features which indicate that date include the location of the embalming incision. When the priests cut open the body, they tended to do it in a specific part of the torso. In this case, they had done it in the area that is most consistent with an 18th dynasty or early 19th dynasty process. Also, the treatment of the brain and the packing of the body suggested mummification had occurred around that time, approximately 1300 BCE. So based on the physical features of the embalming, that did point to roughly the correct date for a figure like Ramesses I. But there can always be exceptions to the rule, so further research was needed. The facial features of this body were particularly noteworthy. The mummy's profile has a pronounced hooked or aquiline nose. That is a nose that we see on the mummies of Seti I and Ramesses II, the direct descendants of Ramesses I. This type of nose is often associated with this family specifically. That's not a smoking gun or anything, but it adds further to the idea that this could be a mummy of that family. In the end, through various studies and professional opinions, the Michael Carlos Museum was confident in announcing that this was indeed the mummy of King Rameses I. As a result, the museum made contact with the Egyptian government, arranged for the king to be returned to Egypt. This took place in October 2003. The mummy travelled in a specially prepared box on a cargo flight, and it arrived at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo on October 26th. Then, in early 2004, the mummy was moved to the city of Luxor, and it was placed in the Luxor Museum. There, the mummy lies in a special gallery, where it is identified as Ramesses I. Notably, the other royal mummy in this museum is that of Armoser I, the king who founded the 18th dynasty. That's fun for a couple of reasons. First of all, Armoser I established the household of dynasty 18, and Ramesses I established that of dynasty 19. So two great founders lie side by side in special galleries of the museum. Also, Last episode we noted how one of Ramesses' names as a pharaoh was Ra. And we observed that Ra is very close to the royal name of Amoza, Neb Nebpehtirah. So just as Ramesses I had deliberately referenced Amozah when he took on his royal identity, now the bodies of these two kings lie side by side. It's a fun echo of ancient patterns. I should note that not everybody agrees that this is the mummy of Ramesses. In particular, a researcher named Dennis Forbes has argued quite strongly that it comes from a later historical period. Forbes, in his book Complete Catalogues of the Royal Mummies, from 2016, goes through the various evidence points around this body. And ultimately, Forbes concludes that this mummy is unlikely to be that of Ramesses I. His reasoning is based on the dates of the discovery and the purchase of the particular body, supposed carbon dating that suggests a later date, and various features of the context, and even the museum display of the body, that might suggest a later ruler. I am not a medical expert, or even an expert on mummification, so I'm not going to comment too strongly on this argument. Forbes has many valid points. A couple of things we should note, though, is that if this is the mummy of Ramesses I, it was removed from its original tomb, and subsequently reburied at a later date. It's entirely possible that the process of repairing the mummy, re-wrapping it, and re-preserving it might have affected the various physical features of the body, such as the style of wrapping, or even organic material that could be used for carbon dating. If this is the mummy of Ramesses I, we should expect that the body was contaminated by the later restoration and reburial process. It's important to bear this in mind when we discuss chronologies and information around it. If it is Ramesses, what can we learn about him? According to various studies, the man was approximately 1.6 meters tall, or 5 foot 2 inches. He died somewhere between the ages of 35 and 45. That seems quite young for Ramesses I, and that's important to note. But at the same time, the age of mummies can be notoriously hard to determine. Sometimes scholarly estimates can easily be off by up to ten years. So at the very least, we can say he's in the ballpark for Ramesses I. If this is the king's mummy, what can we actually say about him? Well, not a lot. He has a prominent nose, and his teeth seem to be visible. His head is leaning back, and his arms are crossed over his chest. The shape of his head and his face do bear a passing resemblance to the bodies of Seti I and Ramesses II, the direct descendants of this king. But that can be quite subjective, so we shouldn't put too much into it. One thing scholars have noted is a possible cause of death. Apparently, one of the ears of this mummy shows evidence for a terrible infection. And it's possible that an ear infection ultimately killed this king. And that is pretty much all we know. You may be wondering, if we have the bodies of Seti I and Ramesses II, and we know pretty confidently that that's them, has anyone done a DNA study of this mummy to determine a relationship? Well, that's tricky. In a 2016 book, Scanning the Pharaohs, Zahi Hawass and Dr. Sahar Salim supposedly did a DNA study of the mummy. The book says, there were many doubts about the identification of Ramesses I, but recently we took DNA samples from this mummy, and also from the mummies of Seti I and Ramesses II. The resulting analysis indicated that the former is his son, and the latter his grandson. You may notice that there is no further information about the DNA or any of the medical data. In fact, as far as I can tell, None of the scientific results from this DNA study have been published. And that is a problem. In the early 2000s, Dr Hawass and his team published a study of the 18th dynasty royal mummies. And that study was challenged by forensic specialists on many points. Long story short, the extraction and examination of ancient DNA is a controversial matter among scientific researchers. One of the major issues is the release and publication of raw data. Although Dr Hawass and his team can publish their findings and their interpretations, the actual release of the DNA material itself remains a point of contention. So when a book like this says, we did a study of Ramesses I, and found a relationship with Seti I and Ramesses II, that's certainly possible. But without the raw DNA information, specialists cannot examine the arguments for themselves, and historians cannot rely on the DNA studies for their own interpretations. With that in mind, I can't say for sure whether this is or is not Ramesses I. There's a decent chance it might be, but at the moment, it's not quite conclusive. Ramesses I died in his second year of rule. This might have happened in late 1304, or early 1303 BCE. Whatever the date, the next step was quite clear. The king would undergo mummification, a funeral, and then burial. And now, a new pharaoh would take the throne. This was King Seti I. Ramesses' son, Suti, now inherited power and became Seti I, one of the most famous kings in Egypt's royal history, and a great name of the political lineage. We will begin the tale of Seti's reign next episode. But first, it's time for a couple of interviews. Next up, I have some conversations with scholars who are expert in aspects of this period. First, a conversation with Dr. Peter Lakovara, the man who initiated the process of identifying and repatriating the mummy of Rameses I. Dr Lakovara sat down with me to discuss this project, and also his research on ancient Egyptian royal palaces. That interview will release very soon. Then, we have a conversation with Professor Peter Brand. Professor Brand is a historian and archaeologist who specialises in the early 19th dynasty. Most notably, Dr Brand did his PhD research on the monuments of Seti I, and in early 2023, he has published a magnificent book, Ramesses II, Egypt's Ultimate Pharaoh. In this book, Dr Brand explores the reign of Ramesses II, but he also discusses the prelude to that, notably the reigns of Seti I and Ramesses I. That book is available now, and I'll put a link in the episode description but Dr Brand kindly sat down with me for a series of interviews to discuss aspects of this period. In the first conversation, we discuss the reign of Ramesses I, and the ascent of his son, Seti I. That conversation will release very soon, after my discussion with Peter Lacovara. Before we go, I must give a shout out to my patrons, and a special thank you to the priests. Andy and Chelsea, Ashley, Evan, Yola, Kendra, Kyla, Linda, Martha, Mykost, Niden, Stephen, Terry, and TJ. These fine folks are the top-tier supporters on Patreon.com, and thanks to their generosity, we can support expeditions to the north and east, we can fund trade with the Phoenicians, and we can afford to commission monuments at home and abroad. Priests, thank you so much, you are far too generous. To everyone listening, thank you so much for joining me. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a rating or a review on your podcasting app of choice, or tell a friend about the History of Egypt podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to help a podcast grow. Thank you to everyone who has rated, reviewed, or recommended the show. You are all very kind. Now then, let us carry on, and say farewell to Ramesses I.